Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am Gail Harriet, and I'm going to be moderating uh, the panel this afternoon. Um, when I first came to California back in 1989, I was very skeptical of the initiative process. I had in mind that peasants with pitchforks um, kind of, of image uh, of direct democracy. Um, what I was thinking, I guess, was how in the world could the average voter um, be able to cast an educated ballot. Um, they probably don't have any particular expertise in the policy area. Uh, they probably don't have um, any particular expertise in the area of law, so that they might not recognize good drafting when they see it, or bad drafting. Uh, and they almost certainly don't have the amount of time necessary to sit down and meticulously read through even the ballot pamphlet, much less further materials. Uh, but over the years, uh, I have become um, something of a convert, a moderate convert, shall we say. Um, it seems to me that um, you've got to compare it to, to the alternative um, that was direct democracy. Um, sure, it's true that some of these things are very badly drafted. Uh, but if you go to Sacramento and take a look at what's going on there, some of that stuff is very badly drafted. Uh, it's true that there are special interests involved. Uh, but that's true in Sacramento, too. Um, and... In fact, most voters actually do a, a, a moderately good job, I think. Uh, that's been my experience, anyway, um, with direct democracy. For one thing, um, it's true they probably don't spend 12 hours pouring through that ballot uh, uh, pamphlet. But they learn to, to, to use quick fixes. You know, they look to see um, what the newspapers are, 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 um, are endorsing and what they're not endorsing. Uh, First thing I look at in my ballot pamphlet is who's signing the ballot argument. Um, if I look at it and it's something that's on a topic like, you know, shall we extend job security to teachers and it's signed by the teachers union? Next. Um, <laughs> and above all, I think voters learn when in doubt, vote no. Um, and that's something Californians are used to doing. And I think it's a good, uh, a good rule of thumb. Not perfect, but nothing's perfect. Um, and so at this point, it seems to me that, that the, the issue that interests me and the one that I've, I've built this panel around um, is quite different from what I thought I would want to talk about 20 years ago. What I want to talk about here is what's happening with legislatures and, and, and courts, um, both before and after initiatives. Are they having too much influence um, on overruling uh, initiatives that have passed, um, or are they doing the right thing? Um, we've got a lot of, of, of different ways that other branches of the government um, can um, have an effect upon what is actually passed. Uh, some people have already mentioned today Elizabeth Gerber's book, uh, Stealing the Initiative, Elizabeth Gerber and several co-authors, um, which is a book that goes through the California experience um, with various ways in which the legislative, the judicial, and executive branches tend to, to, to whittle down the effect of a lot of, of initiatives. Uh, and we're going to be talking about those issues um, with a very, very distinguished panel. So distinguished that I plan to spend almost no time um, introducing them because they are all familiar uh, people, to, especially to this group. 
Uh, we have, in alphabetical order, at least if I was able to, to correctly alphabetize this, um, Judge Alex Kaczynski, uh, who was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit um, in, by the person um, in whose memory this very building uh, was created. And I believe that that makes, made him the youngest judge appointed by the oldest president um, in history. Uh, but if I'm not right, I'm close to right on that. Um, we have the equally eminent Judge Stephen Reinhardt, um, who just happens to be Judge Kaczynski's frequent sparring partner um, in all sorts of contexts. Um, and so not just on the court, but off the court. Um, and I think that makes somewhat the Mark Shields and, and, and uh, who's the current, David Brooks um, of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, we also have um, someone here, I would say that it's possible that somehow, somewhere, somehow, there is someone who knows more about California politics than Arnie Steinberg, but if there is, you cannot prove it by me. Uh, he is uh, a very well-known political writer and consultant, and in fact, he worked, has worked on quite a number of initiatives including Proposition 209, uh, where I worked with him, and so did a number of people in the room here, of course, Ward Connerly, who was our luncheon speaker, but also Manny Klausner and Chuck Bell, and I'm certain there are other people in this room that have worked on Proposition 209 um, that I'm just not thinking of right at this moment. Um, we also have, as our fourth speaker, Professor Eugene Volokh, a very eminent um, scholar of constitutional law at UCLA, um, who also worked on Prop 209. Now, there's one I forgot um, right off the bat there. Um, and just as important, uh, when the organizing committee for this event uh, was thinking who we should get as a speaker, uh, I was told by one of the members, we've got to get Eugene Volokh. He's a rock star. So we have a rock star here. <laughs> uh, and last, but by no means least, we are honored to have our former governor, uh, Pete Wilson. Uh, no governor in California history um, has had a greater understanding um, of the direct democracy process here in California, uh, and no governor has had any more success with that process. Um, governor Schwarzenegger would love to have Governor Wilson's record um, on direct democracy, and they are all going to be answering my questions um, instead of doing individual presentations, uh, I have got uh, a list of questions I want to ask of these gentlemen, uh, and we'll see how they do. Um, What's the passing grade? <laughs> I'm sure you're going to pass, Governor. <laughs> uh, I'm going to start out with, with, with Arnie here, um, and I want to ask him, in the past decade, uh, quite a few states have tightened up their requirements for getting initiatives on the ballot. Uh, and I want to ask, just how difficult is it these days uh, to get an initiative on the California ballot? Uh, do you think it's too hard, too easy, or just about right? Uh, <clears throat> all the above. I think as the only non-lawyer in the panel, I can be equivocal for the following reasons. Uh, I think those who developed this process were of a populist vintage who thought this would be kind of a power of the people. And as Governor Pete Wilson and I were discussing earlier, he referenced David Broder's book, uh, with all the failings, I'm still for it, and Gail alluded to that. 
one of the challenges with Gail is one cannot infer from what she says what applies to the electorate because without trying to sound elitist, uh, Gail is so much more perceptive and so much more learned. And when we try to extrapolate to answer the question you pose, the question is, what is it that's most relevant to the electorate? And the fact of the matter is we have two kinds of ballot initiatives. One are what I call special interest in the true sense of the word, by which I mean whether it's trial lawyers or insurance companies. That has very little to do with the process for which it was designed. And the other, regardless of whether you're a liberal or conservative, has to do with something that are some kinds of citizens' movements. Prop 13 was an example of that. And I don't know, as a non-lawyer, how we can come up with some kind of legal standard that distinguishes between the two. So when Gail asks whether it should be tougher or easier or whatever, I don't know how to come up with a credible legal dual standard to exclude people that have almost infinite resources. And when Gail asks about how difficult it is to qualify, we have to go beyond the simple dual standard, which is for an initiative statute, a lesser signatures, and for a constitutional amendment higher there, to add in a whole host of artificial criteria that seem minor, but in fact are profound. And I will conclude with just a few of them rather than take a long time. And during the course of the discussion, we'll get into more. Let me give you an example. This year, with the presidential election's deep level of interest, we may have a near record turnout in November. At the same time, we have a June primary, which has no constitutional offices on it, no U.S. senators, and will come off of a high turnout recent California primary. The probability is we'll have a near record low turnout in June. It won't be record low only because of the increased absentee, permanent absentee voting, and a near record high November. I think the and we'll have a greatly expanded electorate between June and November. So we'll have a bigger pie in November, a higher percentage of a bigger pie. I would venture to say the number of people who turn out in November will be twice June. That means if you had a ballot measure and you were trying to look at constitutional criteria for how uh, something is going to be passed by what number, you're going to have, if you were planning to put a ballot measure in the ballot, you could have an entirely different electorate and plan for it. So when you try to compare the legislative process as part of the, of the discussion of this to the electoral process, there is no comparison. Another that was alluded to by Gail is in the legislative process, you keep changing things over and over. When we, some of us at this table, worked on Prop 209, which was one of the shortest ballot measures on record, I would say we had two or 300 emails uh, there going through that. Because we knew that once that was locked in concrete, it could never be changed and we would be burdened with it. So... In conclusion, what we now see in this state is largely measures by formula where you can get almost anything on the ballot if you have enough money. We've had the California, you alluded to teachers, so I'll close it. You had the California Teachers Association in 10 weeks qualify a measure there. Why? Because they were able to pay a lot per signature. Now, depending on whether you're in a recession, depression, or booming economy affects how much you have to pay per signature how many other ballot measures are on. So all these artificial measures really wind up affecting what is going to go on the ballot or not. And most of the measures we see on the ballot are measures that are not grassroots constituency uh, at all. And in the prior panel, there was discussion about the role of money, and I disagreed with, with uh, 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 one of the uh, questioners who suggested that money is a better predictor uh, of uh, 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 candidates or ballot measures. I, I, I think in ballot measures, 
again, and this will be my final statement, why is it that it's easier to defeat a, a, a ballot measure? That puts the greatest burden upon those who are citizens who are trying to get a measure on the ballot because uh, no matter how worthy your measure is, the easiest way to defeat a measure is to play the blemish game. Find something on page 68, paragraph 2, and do an entire TV campaign because the electorate is largely risk-averse. Uh, and that should in no way be equated with the legal burden of proof in a case there. But that, in fact, is what we have. We have the electorate acting as judge and jury on grassroots citizens' initiatives where they are prone to vote uh, no. And that's why once you spend all the money to qualify a measure on the ballot, it's to be careful what you wish for because you then have to come up with a, usually a considerable funding edge over the opposition just to pass it. Thanks, Arnie. I got a question for Professor Volokh now, Eugene. I was at a political um, event last week, and I got this swell button, free the OK3, which is an Oklahoma 3. And I understand, actually, that one of the Oklahoma 3 is with us today, Paul Jacob, who was arrested um, in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, he and his, his colleagues, they were arrested for violating a law that prohibits out-of-staters from collecting signatures. Uh, and I think Paul was actually arrested not for collecting the signatures himself, but for conspiracy to collect the signatures. Paul, <laughs> Paul are you, where are you here? There he is. My question is for Eugene, uh, and that is, is the Oklahoma law that prevents um, out-of-staters from collecting signatures, is that constitutional? Well, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. It's a question I didn't know the answer to or anything close to it three days ago, but now I've read up on it. Uh, now I'm an expert, so I can give it answer with great authority. That's let's, how this expertise stuff Let's works. step back a bit and just think about it, setting aside uh, uh, Supreme Court doctrine for a moment. Um, so signature gathering is a dual endeavor. One part of it is very much traditional speech. If you're a signature gatherer, you know you have to communicate to people, say, asking them to sign the papers. And uh, you could do that by putting up a, putting up a sign, by having a, a, good, a good spiel, having good responses and the like. So that part is pretty clearly core constitutionally protected speech. That's the kind of thing that you can engage in. I mean, I, I don't know of any cases testing that, but I imagine that if the government tried to ban people, ban non-U.S. citizens from advocating on behalf of a particular initiative, uh, that would be pretty clearly unconstitutional. There actually is such a ban on non-U.S. citizens contributing money to uh, candidate campaigns. Uh, and it's an interesting question whether that's constitutional. But it's pretty clear that if all you're doing is speaking, uh, the rights are very broad, subject to very few burdens. Uh, but there's a second component to signature gathering, and that is that technically speaking, you're acting as a kind of legal witness, kind of almost like a notary public. That's your job to, to make sure that people sign properly and not to induce them to sign improperly, and you're supposed to verify what it is that was signed, and you're supposed to also be available later on to, to, if there is some challenge. In theory, I'm not sure that practically that's much of an issue, but in theory, you're supposed to be available if there's a claim that there's some signatures were forged or were placed by uh, people who were signing for somebody else, I guess that is forged and the like. So it's this weird dual, dual function. Um, and you might 
Imagine the Supreme Court, for example, dealing with that in a way that's quite restrictive of signature gathering rights and saying, look, uh, you, if you, all you're doing is speaking, uh, then that's fine. You have unlimited rights. But, then, but uh, we get uh, control very much. This little kind of election observer, quasi-election observer who's standing there and who's verifying this. So we could require him to be unpaid. We could require him to be a, a resident of a very particular narrow area and the like. Uh, and, and then if you want to, you could have teams of two people, one out of state, one in state, but you've got to have a, an in-state or even in-districter who's unpaid, who went through a training course, who did all these various things, uh, maybe even a government official. Um, so you could imagine that. Now, as it happens, the Supreme Court has not said that. So uh, in the case called Meyer v. Grant, the Supreme Court unanimously held that, that for example, a restriction on um, uh, a ban on uh, paid signature gathering is unconstitutional. And it held so without any discussion of this dual function that I'm talking about. So you might think that that's just sort of theoretically an interesting theoretical detour and frolic of a professor, but not what the court really cares about. It viewed signature gathering as constitutionally protected speech. But here's the difficulty, that if you look at what lower courts have done since then with regard to the question of residency requirements, here's the pattern. Virtually all requirements that people be resident in a particular district have been struck down. They've been generally justified in a couple of ways. One uh, justification was that people who are resident in a particular district uh, are more knowledgeable about the boundaries of the district and will know better whether to, uh, whether to, uh, they're allowed to gather signatures here or there. Courts very quickly gave the back of the hand to that because that's obviously bonk. I mean, who knows? Do you, any of you know? I mean, Arnie, you may know the, the boundaries of the district you reside in, but probably nobody else. A second rationale that was given. <laughs> A second, That's not a compliment. <laughs> yes, there you go. A second rationale that was given is get rid of the carpetbaggers. That we in the town of Covina are entitled to decide what we as Covinans do without intrusion by non-Covinans. Courts have very quickly rejected that. Uh, on the grounds that that's not even a legitimate government interest, that uh, uh, anybody throughout America is entitled to try to influence uh, the, um, through his speech uh, the processes, election processes in any place in America. He can't vote in that place, but he can come in and he can speak and he can gather signatures and the like. But there was a third argument that the courts have been quite more sympathetic to, and there's at least one circuit court case and several district court cases that have upheld it, as well as one that has in some measure rejected it. And that's the argument that the signature gatherers have to be available to be subpoenaed uh, and conveniently subpoenaed should they be um, uh, subpoenaed for uh, some investigation of alleged fraud in the signature gathering. And if you're in North Dakota, the case came out of North Dakota, it was decided by the Eighth Circuit, uh, if you're the North Dakota Secretary of State and the signature gatherers are long gone back home to Florida, then they may be outside of the state subpoena power, or maybe even if in theory you can subpoena them in practice, it would be much, much harder to conduct the investigation. So that's the argument that's out there on the table that's been accepted by a circuit court, accepted by several district courts. One district court rejected that, saying, essentially making a less, least restrictive alternative argument. Said, look, even if this is a compelling interest, there are other ways you can deal with it. For example, you could require signature gatherers to sign a promise saying that they will comply with the subpoena even if they're out of state. Uh, 
that is something of a burden, by the way, on signature gatherers. You generally can't require somebody to sign anything uh, in order to be able to speak on a street corner or, uh, or uh, hand out leaflets or whatever else. But the court said, well, that would be an acceptable burden, but a total ban on out-of-state signature gatherers would not be. Uh, but that was just one district court, and it's not clear how much other courts will, will accept it because even though the Supreme Court hasn't fully followed this dual-track approach that I mentioned, there's still remnants of it out there that signature gathering is viewed as a, as a dual function and a function that the, uh, that the kind of the testimonial aspects of the, the ability to kind of vouch and, uh, for the signature and come back later to uh, when that's investigated, uh, those functions are something that is subject to some degree of greater regulation. Okay, I want to get questions out to all our panelists, and then we can mix it up a little bit more. Let me, let me give one to, to, to Governor Wilson here. Uh, as governor, would you have signed legislation into law that would, say, raise the number of signatures required by 20% or otherwise generally make it a little bit more difficult uh, to, to uh, pass a popular initiative, as states have been tending to do um, over the last few years? And what do you think accounts for the general trend towards making it more difficult to pass initiatives? Is a proper balance being struck? Well, I think to answer the first question, no, I would not have signed it <clears throat> because it would just tend to aggravate the influence and the importance of money in the contest that uh, Arnie hypothetically posed between trial lawyers and insurance companies. Not so hypothetical. <laughs> They're going to pay whatever the going rate is to the signature gatherers. And if you increase the number of signatures, you're just going to make the signature gatherers richer but it might make it more difficult for people who are not the moneyed special interests to avail themselves of the initiative process. If you were serious, for whatever reason, about wanting to make it more difficult, raising the bar on qualification, and let's differentiate between qualification and the campaign that follows that. If you wanted to do that, an alternative method would be to lower the requirement by 20 percent or maybe perhaps even more, but prohibit signature gatherers from being paid. Think about that for a minute. And I'm sure that there are some in the audience who've already thought about it and rejected it because they're signature gatherers. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, though, what um, I think you're seeing is that there is a mixed feeling among the general populace and among those who are involved, legislators tend to frown on initiatives for the very reason, I think, that it is something of an insult, they think, to them. And they're right. <laughs> and it's justified. Because, in fact, it was created, as was the referendum and the recall to deal with defaults on the part of elected officials. The initiative is a remedy for legislative default. Some would say, no, it's actually um, an opportunity to escape wise legislative discretion. The referendum is a remedy for legislative excess or wrongdoing at least on a policy basis. The recall, which is a very serious device, should exist. It should not be employed lightly. It should not be employed 
simply to anticipate the next election and, and in effect, be a substitute for it. But it is a necessary device to remove people who've been guilty of malfeasance in office. Now, the problems that most people have with initiative measures are the problems and the complaints they would make about political campaigns in general. Too much money, too much influence of money. The ability to influence voters who are not spending all the time that Gail Harriet spends. I mean, you're right. We have come a long way from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. You've now got, in a typical situation, people on one end of the question whose minds are made up and have been for some time. And on the other end, a number in that same situation. And in between, depending on the question, a group who really have not decided and in many cases haven't even thought about the issue. And some of these, sadly, take the trouble to register, the trouble to vote. It's not great trouble in this state. But they don't take the trouble to inform themselves about the issues. So what happens? Well, they make up their mind based on the 30-second spots, the television ads that they see that are interspersed between their favorite sitcoms between Thursday and Sunday before the election. Now, I hope that doesn't sound cynical, but unhappily, it is realistic in the case of all too many. And I will agree with Gail's initial response. It is a daunting task for those who are working, trying to take care of their families, trying to do the other civic duties that they feel important. They do not have the time, the interest, the energy. Not only do they not have the education and the expertise in the law, but they have a great deal of incentive if they're going to participate at all in answering the question yes or no on some densely, some impenetrable prose. They're likely to look for proxies whom they think they can trust. And that's not a bad idea. Look and see who the ballot signatories are. The fact of the matter is, when you've got a measure that is relatively simple and straightforward, as was 209, I think it's the classic example. By the way, you're surrounded by people who worked on 209. You left out another. <laughs> I apologize. You're accepted. <laughs> the, fact, the fact of the matter is, you really got to be very, very careful um, the, the good intentions that you can have when you try to dot every I, cross every T on something that is 68 pages long, um, you're going to be setting yourself up for an attack by opponents who will seize upon something that is perhaps of no great consequence, but it has the capability to excite people. But in many cases, what you also have, and had, uh, I can think of any number. I'll, I'll give you another example, paycheck protection. Paycheck protection was the opposite of 209. 
People not only could read 209 and instantly understand it. It was short. It was simple. It was clear. And everybody who had given it a moment's thought, had paid any attention, knew what it was. And their minds weren't going to be changed because they knew what they wanted to do about that. Paycheck protection, not the time that Governor Schwarzenegger sought to pass it with Proposition 75, but the earlier effort in 1998 that I made, which was little noted nor long remembered, actually got about the same result as Schwarzenegger's. But here's what happened. I think this is very interesting. The San Francisco Examiner, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought, but nonetheless curious about what the results might be with this measure, conducted focus groups, surveys to determine what people thought when they actually understood what it did. And they were very clear. What it will do is say that if you're a union member and your employer has engaged in collective bargaining and given away an important concession, if they take money from your paycheck in excess of the amount necessary to compensate the union for the cost of collective bargaining, and it winds up being spent for political purposes, should that be done without the consent of those whose paycheck is being rated to do it. When people understood the issue, 75% plus said there should be paycheck protection. It's wrong to take somebody's money without their consent and use it for political purposes with which they may very well disagree. The only problem with that is that come election day, it got stomped because the samples knew what it was about, but no one else did. We had enough money to qualify it, not enough money to pass it. And there is a distinction between qualification and the campaign that follows. And the campaign that followed in that case was very well funded. I think I caused the expenditure of a vast amount of union funds from all over America. We were outspent, we know, as a matter of record, at least four or five to one, hell, it was more like ten or higher to one. And the point really was that they tried all manner of pretext, most of which didn't gain any traction. Finally, two did. They did 30-second spots and saturated the airwaves, saying, one, this will prohibit your making a voluntary contribution to a charity of your choice. Flatly untrue. And the second was almost more ludicrous. It said, if you vote for this and it passes, you will compel the public disclosure of the address, the home address of law enforcement officials, thereby putting them and their families in jeopardy. That happened to be, under existing state law, a felony. And nothing in the proposition sought to change it. So they just flat lied. And what was the penalty for that? They won the election, not by a whole lot. Interesting. But, in fact, there is no penalty. And this is what's wrong with political campaigning. Those with a lot of money can either tell the truth or not. And if they choose not to,
They can lie with impunity, as they did in that case and have in many others. They couldn't get away with it on 209 because everybody knew what the issue was. So I would say that worrying about making qualification tougher or less tough is one of the lesser issues. You can do various things, but the question I might have for Gene Volokh is, would it be constitutional to prohibit payment of signature gathers? I have an answer. No. Meyer v. Grant, 1988. Thank you, uh, that was a long time ago. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's bring our two judges into this. I'm addressing this question to both of them. Um, and some scholars, and I, I believe among them uh, is the late Julian Yule, have suggested that courts <laughs> ought to hold uh, initiatives to a somewhat tougher standard uh, than they do enactments of the legislature, uh, particularly if those initiatives harm minorities. Uh, and I guess my, 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 my question to start off is, 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 do you approach challenges to the constitutionality uh, of popular initiatives differently um, than you do challenges to ordinary legislation? Do you think other judges do? Um, and should they? And I want to pitch it slightly differently as well, too. Uh, one problem with the title of this, um, this panel, um, we're asking who's in charge, courts, legislature, the people, it sort of suggests that courts and legislatures are on, on equal footing with, with regard to how they, um, I don't want to use a, a term quite as loaded as interfere, but how they have an effect upon, upon uh, initiatives. Um, but in fact, it, it, it's not really quite that in the sense that nobody's going to bring an initiative if they think they can get that get it through the legislature instead. It's much cheaper. And if you really think you can get, get, get something through the legislature, why spend a million dollars collecting signatures? Um, and so there's kind of an inherent conflict between legislatures and courts. There's not that same inherent conflict between courts and popular initiatives. And yet the public perception is very much that courts don't like um, popular initiatives. You know, there are some famous cases um, in, in, in the minds of Californians on that. Uh, and one of them, Judge Reinhardt, is the Bates versus Jones case, the term limits case. Uh, it was later overturned on Bonk, uh, but originally uh, it was held uh, that Prop 140 was misleading because it did not make it sufficiently clear uh, that California legislators would be termed out from their particular office for life rather than simply prohibited from serving uh, more than a particular number of consecutive terms. And I believe that was an opinion that you authored. Uh, the other one um, that is somewhat well-known, or one of the, those that is somewhat well-known, and the one that I know best, uh, was the one involving Proposition 209, uh, in which federal judge Felton Henderson struck down an initiative prohibiting discrimination uh, or preferential treatment on the basis of race or gender um, in public education, public employment, and public contracting. Uh, and what was interesting is that he did it on, on, on 14th Amendment grounds, uh, holding that an initiative that prohibits preferential treatment based on race or gender was a violation uh, of the Equal Protection Clause rather than, than uh, a, uh, a continuation of, uh, of that kind of policy. Um, and so I guess my question is, is, therefore, what is the source of the perceived judicial bias against direct democracy? Um, is it the public's imagination or is it real? And if it's real, is it justifiable or not? 
Unfortunately, Dan Lowenstein may have misled you. Uh, I don't have the opportunity to give you a fiery judicial activist speech today. Uh, I'll be glad to come back sometime. Uh, today's appearance is uh, to discuss the question our moderator just defined, uh, and I'll answer that question. First quite part of the question is who's in charge, the courts, the legislature, or the people? The answer is the Constitution. That's what the job of the courts is, to enforce the Constitution. And the Bill of Rights' role in our lives is to see that a majority doesn't uh, unconstitutionally deprive a minority of its rights uh, because they have the ability to do that, whether by initiative, statute, or any other means. We could just let the majority do anything we wanted, it wanted, and take the, the rights away uh, from all people, except the majority, which would benefit itself. But that's not the kind of system we have in our country. We have a Bill of Rights because <clears throat> our Constitution protects minorities against a majority that is interested in benefiting itself. And that's the role of the courts to enforce the Constitution. Uh, so it's the Constitution that's in charge, uh, not the courts, not the legislature, not the people, when a majority acts solely for its own interests and in a way that un unfairly and improperly deprives the others of their rights. Now, to get to the question of an initiative, which, like any other piece of legislation, uh, can uh, deprive people of their rights in violation of the Constitution. When that happens, and it's not very often, it's the job of the courts to strike down the initiative just the way it would strike down a statute. Now, there very rarely does that happen. Uh, there are two examples in California that our moderator uh, advised you of, which you all are familiar with, I'm sure. I can't think of any other examples. We have a uh, court system in the first place, which is dominated by conservatives. Uh, and I might say that was a uh, it's, it's perfectly appropriate for a president to appoint judges who share his view of the Constitution. Uh, that battle started with President Nixon, continued through President Reagan to President Bush's. And as a result, the nature of the court system has been radically changed over the years. And whatever you may hear about the Ninth Circuit, uh, there is no liberal circuit in this country these days. Every single circuit in the country is dominated by conservatives. In any event, uh, there is not a hostility toward initiatives in the court system. There is a hostility toward unconstitutional actions, whether by the legislature or the initiative. Now, the two examples that our moderator gave, uh, I, I wrote the opinion in the uh, term limits case. What happened in that case is that the California Supreme Court said that the statute is ambiguous. It said nowhere. There are two types of term limits in this country. The majority of term limits, most states have limits on a that that are not for lifetime. They are limits for a particular period where the legislature can go out or legislator 
can go out of office and then he can return after a particular period. The proponents of this initiative, very cleverly, never mentioned lifetime limits. And that's one of the problems with initiatives, I might say. The drafters are very clever. They want to give the public uh, a particular view of the initiative, which is very easy to do in short initiatives or long initiatives. You can make people think something's pro-civil rights if it's anti-civil rights. It all depends on how you write your initiative. So in this initiative, the proponents took every measure to avoid saying it was lifetime initiative. The state, when it defended the initiative in the California Supreme Court, said, oh, no, this is not a lifetime measure. This is the kind of initiative that allows legislators to go out of office and return after a period of time. They said that's the majority type of initiative. That's the type that we have in California. The Supreme Court, as I said, said, well, it may have seemed that way, and it was ambiguous, but we think that most voters would likely understand what it meant. So what our court did, until it unfortunately went on bank, what our court did was to say this is a due process violation, that the right of voters to select any person they want the right of voters to vote freely for candidates without being told they can't do that. That's a basic constitutional right that voters have, not to be told they can't vote for A or they can't vote to, for B, but to vote for anyone they want to. That's a fundamental privilege in a democracy. And th there's lots of authority to that effect. And since it's a fundamental privilege, you have to make it clear to voters if you want to take away that right. And that we are not ruling on whether term limits are constitutional or not. We're ruling on the fact that if you want to have a lifetime ban on voting for a particular candidate, mm -hmm. then you've got to make it clear. It wasn't clear to the state, which took the opposite position. It was unclear to the Supreme Court, which said it was ambiguous. So we said, if you want to do it, do it clearly and vote again and put it on the next ballot. Now, that doesn't demonstrate any hostility to the, to the uh, initiative process. The other case of, Pro of Proposition 209 uh, was a case where there was a disagreement in the judiciary as to whether that was constitutional or not. You may all think it's a wonderful measure and may think Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall would have loved that measure. Well, I think most people who are familiar with Martin Luther King and Thurgood Marshall would tell you you're just completely wrong. So there were different views of the validity of the measure, the purpose of the measure, and whether it was in compliance with the Constitution. Now, as you know, we have five to four votes on the Supreme Court all the time. We have a president who was put into office by a five to four vote. Five people who up until then had regularly told us, don't interfere with the state. Let the state make these decisions. And then had a five to four vote that said, well, this decision's for this case only. So we have all kinds of judges and all kinds of disagreements. But as someone said a while ago, it's not a very good system but it's the best one that we can probably 
conceive of. And you will find judges who will take one view of an initiative measure and its constitutionality and a different group that will take a different view. I suspect that in that, had that case gone to the Supreme Court, the vote would have been five to four. Had it gone before the time when the nature of the Marshall-Warren-Brennan court was changed by presidents who did it on a political basis and had every right to do that, he would have had a five to four vote or more saying 209 was unconstitutional. Had you had the present Supreme Court, you'd probably have a five to four vote that it was constitutional. Now, unless you want to eliminate the judicial system, which some of you might like to do, uh, that's the best you can do. Now, I'd say one more thing about the judicial system before, uh, and maybe we'll come back to this later, but that's the question of the recall and direct democracy for judges. The good thing about the federal judicial system, and there may be bad things, is that judges have life tenure and are free to vote their consciences what they believe the Constitution says, not what they believe will be popular with the majority. It's the finest thing about the federal system. Unfortunately, in most states, you don't have that. And unfortunately, in most states, judges have to worry about their elections. And they have to worry about doing not what the law says, but what they think will be popular with voters. That's part of the problem with a recall uh, in, as far as the judiciary is concerned. We went through a recall in California, which was supposedly about the death penalty. That was the popular view. But if you look at the campaign contributions for that election, you will find what that election was about was to get rid of judges who were voting for working people injured people, voting against large corporations and agricultural interests. That's where the funding for that election came from. And that's what when Governor Wilson talked a minute ago about insurance companies and trial lawyers. That's what you'll find going on in the state courts now. Millions and millions of dollars put into judicial campaigns, mainly to get rid of what they consider liberal state courts. Uh, we would be far better off, and we had far fairer courts, if you did not have judicial elections anywhere. And we didn't have, since to tie it back to our subject, recall of judges. Judge Kaczynski? I'm always happy to have Judge Reinhardt go first, because he always gives me so much to disagree with. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, Judge Reinhardt, I, I, my memory on these things is not very good, but I think his memory is even shorter than mine. Uh, he says uh, only two cases, uh, which uh, Gail mentioned, uh, involving courts striking down recall elections, but there are plenty more that I can think of. Wasn't there 187? Wasn't there an initiative having to do with immigration that was struck down by Judge Felser, came up on appeal, uh, was struck down by our court, and then the state of California threw the case? Uh, denied uh, the client to petition for certiorari because it was a new governor. Uh, unfortunately, we lost. Uh, we had a change of governors, uh, and the case was thrown. Uh, now, correctly decided, I believe, by the by Judge Felser in the district court here, and correctly decided by us under existing Supreme Court law. Uh, but there was a chance to go to the United States Supreme Court, and the, the state decided not to not to not to take it. Um, 
Do I remember correctly, uh, wasn't there an initiative out of Arizona uh, involving English only that we struck down over my dissent? Uh, it went to the United States Supreme Court. They said the silent standing grounds. Uh, but uh, then uh, um, think about uh, uh, Romo versus Evans, the uh, case out of Colorado, uh, where in an opinion... Well, it's very difficult to understand, let's put it that way, uh, whose rationale is difficult to understand. The Supreme Court strikes down the initiative uh, 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 in Colorado that would have uh, uh, prohibited the states, uh, uh, rather localities, from, from, um, uh, from um, uh, passing initiatives that, that uh, uh, prohibited uh, discrimination against gays. Uh, then we have in the same vein out of California, uh, who remembers from law school, uh, uh, Reitman versus Mulkey, um, and Mulkey versus Reitman, uh, they went to the United States Supreme Court, there's Proposition 1 on the California ballot, struck down, uh, that was an anti-anti-discrimination um, uh, initiative. Uh, and it's not just the liberals who do it. I mean, remember uh, uh, parents involved, the case out of Seattle uh, involving the school plan that went the other way from, from, uh, from, uh, uh, from um, uh, California at 209? Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, without any difficulty, uh, uh, struck it down. Um, and finally, let's not forget the uh, three-judge panel on our court, uh, distinguished judges, all fine colleagues of mine, uh, who stopped in its tracks the recall election of the governor. Uh, bam, just stopped it. Now, we, we took it in bank and we, we reversed that, but uh, uh, th there was no reluctance there on Bush versus Gore grounds uh, to, to stop uh, an actual recall election. So I think to answer your question, Gail, I think uh, the, the perceived hostility of courts to initiative measures is probably uh, a justified perception. Uh, it, is, it, is, it, is, uh, it is more likely than not that, uh, that courts take a harder view, uh, a more uh, aggressive, uh, a, a, a more sort of persnickety view of initiatives than they do of other pieces of legislation. Now, I um, liked Julian Yule a great deal. I respected him a great deal. I certainly thought he taught at a uh, premier law school, you know, the best in the country, I think. Uh, same law school that Eugene and I graduated from. Uh, uh, and uh, so I, I, I thought uh, this was all fine, but I thought he was just dead plain wrong on the question of whether or not courts ought to give more or less deference uh, to, uh, to uh, measures passed by, by, by the voters. Uh, it seems to me Judge Reinhardt is correct in saying that really it is the same standard. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, you're measuring the Constitution. Uh, and at the very least, you have to say that. It's, 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 a, it's a measure passed by the political process, and therefore it, ha it, it certainly cannot be judged by a more stringent constitutional standard than uh, anything else. There is an argument, I think, uh, why, uh, 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 th that would suggest that courts should actually give more deference to the uh, measures passed by, uh, by the people. Uh, and that is, if you think about our constitutional, our tripartite form of government, the judiciary acts as a check on the other two branches. So if the president or the Congress passes a measure and the president signs it into law, or if the legislature in California passes a measure and the governor uh, passes it into law, uh, the 
respective state and federal courts can then step in and apply constitutional norms to keep the other two branches in check. And, of course, there are other checks and balances that go the other way, with the president appointing judges and the Senate uh, confirming and uh, uh, the power of the purse that Congress has over the, over, the, over the judicial salaries, which are way too low. I really, you know, just, just remember when you go home, way, way too low. Um, uh, but but um, the situation is quite different when you're dealing with a court ruling on an initiative that is actually passed by the people. This is no longer one branch of government uh, acting as a check on two other coordinate branches. This is one branch of government putting itself over the people. Now, Judge Reinhardt will tell you, and I think he's absolutely right, it's not the court that puts itself over the people. It is a constitution that is over the people, and the people, of course, can amend the Constitution, but until they do, it is supreme even over uh, the will of the people. But I do think the courts ought to exercise a measure, additional measure of restraint, an additional measure of humility when applying constitutional norms to, some, to a process that actually uh, is a result of direct vote by the people. And in my view, if, 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 if at the very least courts ought to give the same degree of deference to, 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 to uh, initiatives, and in my view, I think maybe uh, courts ought to give an additional measure of deference and try extra hard to avoid constitutional issues and finding a way of uh, saving the, 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 the initiative from uh, constitutional um, um, invalidation. I don't want to sound like Hillary Clinton, but if I could just have 30 well, seconds. Well, don't talk like this. <laughs> Hillary Clinton doesn't want to sound like Hillary Clinton. Uh, ahead, 30 Judge. seconds to respond. Uh, I was not totaling the number of initiatives throughout the nation. I was talking about California, in which Judge Kaczynski is quite right. There was a third in approximately 100 years. Where I think we have had courts strike down initiatives three times, uh, two of which the courts reversed themselves uh, and therefore did not demonstrate any hostility because the ultimate court decision was to uphold them in two out of three. And the third out of three, I don't think it went quite the way Judge Kaczynski did, but it's true that it was settled and it did not end up being struck down by the court. Uh, there are, Judge Kaczynski mentioned, I think probably two or three other cases he mentioned Mulkey versus Reitman, which, of course, was not an initiative. It was a referendum on a law passed by the state. Uh, but he's mentioned two or three other cases, one from Arizona. Uh, I don't remember where the other one was. So maybe there are five or six, then, instead of two or three. Washington in, a, in, in approximately 100 years. And in most of those, the courts did not strike down the initiative measure. So I'd say there's a very, very strong case that the courts love initiative measures uh, <laughs> and are hardly hostile to them. Um, okay, gentlemen. In the wake of, of, of Proposition 209's litigation, uh, the late Congressman Sonny Bono uh, had a proposal for a three-judge panel um, to be applied to litigation over the constitutionality of proposed initiatives. So if you have one quirky judge out there who happens not to like initiatives or not to like a particular initiative, that one quirky judge won't be able to derail um, the initiative, uh, even temporarily. 
uh, and under at least one version of the proposal, this would have required an immediate use of a three-judge panel if the, the trial judge uh, feels himself in the least disposed um, to issue a preliminary or, or, or any other kind of injunction um, against the enforcement of the popular initiative. Um, would that have been a good idea? Uh, no. Uh, first place, if you want to have three judges uh, hear the case initially, that's fine. You don't get through a case and the judge says, well, I think I might do this, so now I'm going to bring two people in. We have two kinds of cases I'm aware of in which we have three judge courts. One has to do with redistricting, uh, and the other has to do with the panel I'm now on, which is what, if you're going to let prisoners free because of unconstitutional violations of uh, their rights, with a prison overcrowding. Uh, you know, I, it, I don't have any objection particularly if you want to make a third category out of initiatives. Uh, I don't think it adds much, really, because you can, you can have three quirky judges just as easily as one, two out of three. By quirky, it means they don't agree with your view of the legality of the initiative. <laughs> Uh, you know, but then have it the whole time. And then if we get one quirky judge who thinks the initiative's good, then we'll have three and we'll have two who will say it's bad, issue the injunction. Uh, I don't think it makes much difference because either way you go right up to the Court of Appeals. But, I, I, you know, it's, it's not a big thing either way. I don't think it's going to change much. I don't think, it, I don't think it's a solution. Uh, but I don't think it would do any great harm. You know, when I was clerking um, for Judge Kennedy here in California, uh, the ninth, I mean, he was on the Ninth Circuit. We had two cases at that time. Uh, whenever a district judge struck down a state measure, you had, you, you, he had to invoke a three-judge district court. And we were involved in two cases. One involved the CRLA, the California Labor uh, Rural... Rule, rule, uh, thank you. Uh, our words are troubling to me. Judge Cocker in Fresno... Uh, struck it down, and then we went swooping in from Sacramento, Judge Kennedy and Judge McBride. Uh, Judge McBride came in on a little puddle jumper over, over the fields, bouncing. Uh, anyway, um, and we uh, very quickly uh, entered an order 2 to 1, or we, my, ju my judge and uh, Judge McBride, entered an order 2 to 1, restoring the statute. And then uh, the same year, we had a uh, judge in Sacramento, Judge, judge Wilkins, I believe, uh, was his name, he, uh, strike down a California legislation dealing with a uh, piece of legislation dealing with uh, with um, uh, with um, f fires, uh, uh, furniture fires, something, something of that sort, uh, and struck it down as being inconsistent with federal law. And uh, again, a three-judge court was convened, and once again, the, the, the three judges, the other two judges persuaded uh, Judge Wilkins to, to, to change his mind. So as a, as a matter of, as a matter of um, um, observed experience, the possibility that you will have three uh, quirky judges is, is less than that you will have one. Uh, it took two weeks, I think, for the, uh, our court to reverse Judge Henderson, good or bad, uh, there's not a time problem. It, you can get the three judges on, on the Court of Appeals within a couple of weeks in that kind of a case. So that's why it really doesn't matter very much. Uh, yeah. I'm inclined to say that the one situation where it might matter, I'm inclined to say once I have the microphone, uh, is when there are fact findings that are relatively important. Uh, 
indeed, if it's just a pure legal question, then in that case, at most, it's a matter of some delay. And the fact is, given how long it takes to get something on the ballot, it's not like it's urgent that something be done right away. Uh, but there is the possibility that one quirky judge will find the facts, to the extent the facts are relevant, in a way that's not quite right. The chances that three quirky judges are there less, and if there are two quirky judges, the third non-quirky judge can ride hard on them and could say, look, well, I shouldn't say ride hard, that's the wrong, me the wrong metaphor, uh, can, can uh, uh, say, look, uh, you guys are getting this wrong. And often, my understanding, actually one of the reasons that it's good for circuit judges to sit in panels is sometimes, even if two non-quirky judges just make a mistake, the third one can't help correct them. Um, the legal mistakes of the district court judge can be corrected by a three-judge uh, appellate panel. The factual fact-finding, the, the fact-finding mistakes are much harder to correct. So that would be the advantage of that. One thing I should say, though, is while we're talking about initiatives, we shouldn't over-glorify them. I mean, if you think there's a real problem with, let's say, judicial fact-finding with regard to initiatives, I think you should be also worried with regard to uh, judicial fact-finding with regard to statutes, because after all, those people, we also elected them. What they have to say, they are saying in our, in our name and with some democratic legitimacy. So it's not so much that I think that having three-judge panels is, is, a is a bad idea or completely unnecessary. You can see some advantages if you think that trial judges are likely to get it wrong in fact-finding, but it, do it is hard to see why we should be so solicitous of initiatives uh, and not of democratically elected statutes uh, that are being challenged. You know, I, you could make a case for the Florida system where the judges are deciding an initiative before it goes on the ballot rather than avoid the whole electoral process, although you may differ, differ with their standards. But I think that we ought to bear in mind just how this process currently works in California. The Attorney General produces a ballot label, which are the words that are precisely opposite yes or no. And numerous studies, including my own, have shown a significant share of the electorate decides based upon those words in the ballot label. Now, we have the Attorney General exercising sole authority at the outset, and we've had, I think, what many of us this panel, despite our difference in, in views, would, uh, we would disagree with some of these ballot uh, labels. The most recent was how Jerry Brown uh, worded uh, this latest uh, term limits measure. And then we had one here in Los Angeles. Remember, we're talking not just the state, but county and city, where, uh, in effect, a, uh, a tax hike was being depicted as a tax uh, a decrease uh, there to, to stack the deck. From the judicial process standpoint, if you are dissatisfied as a proponent of the measure, you go into a court in Sacramento where a single judge uh, under a, period, a narrow time frame makes a decision, and they defer to the Attorney General. Now, I can tell you that the outcomes are very, very odd. The, the original school choice measure in 1993 deliberately omitted the word voucher because uh, my studies indicated that voucher was a pejorative. Uh, Attorney General Lundgren, who supported school choice, incompetently inserted the word voucher because he thought that was good. So be careful what your friends do. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the judge upheld that because judges, the single judge in Sacramento who, who has initiatives, uh, and we have lawyers here from firms that have litigated, defers 
almost all the time the attorney general. And then within a narrow time frame, even if you feel you have merit on your side, it's very hard to get it reversed. So the nature of the judicial intervention at the beginning determines the all-important uh, ballot label. And so while we can talk about these uh, lofty goals and these very important citizen movements, the clinical uh, criteria, such as the ballot label, uh, have very, very uh, profound effects. Okay. Well, that's what I said about uh, having these initiatives decided in advance, the constitutionality is a very good idea. It should be California Supreme Court almost always defers till after the election, and then it doesn't want to set it aside because the people have already voted. Uh, and if they do set it aside, look at all the money that has been wasted in that campaign. So if we could persuade the California Supreme Court to decide the constitutionality of initiatives before rather than after the election, I think everyone would be better off. But, but uh, I mean, I, I, it sounds great, and I'd like to hear how other states do it, but uh, there's a timing issue, I take it, uh, right? And uh, you presumably would want the California Supreme Court to issue a reasoned opinion, uh, but and you could say that it always goes to the head of the line and the court has to issue an opinion in 30 days, I suppose, but 30 days is actually not a great time to, uh, to, to do that. So, the, so there would end up being some considerable delay. Do you think that that would be a problem or do you think that given the number of initiatives out there, they can uh, do a good job with all of them uh, pretty quickly? I don't think there'd be more than one year challenged on constitutionality. Uh, I, I think why, why, why not? I mean, uh, a solid challenge is probably pretty rare, but, uh, you know, you can come up with a lot of things. Well, you, that we can expect that it will be challenged every step right. of the way, right. before, yeah. the during qualification, during the campaign, and after it's passed. Well, the, the major, a major one, like 209 would, uh -huh. uh, but... 90% of the of the initiatives on the ballot are not that, that politically controversial or that emotional to people. Big money involved, so they'll litigate. Okay, you know. let me let me well, throw in another question here. But they don't. Uh, and I think this question is going to be one that is going to, going to interest Governor Wilson in particular, uh, because he's had his own experiences with him, and that is mediation among the parties of the lawsuit challenging an initiative. Uh, the case that I'm most interest uh, most familiar with. Um, is one in Michigan, actually, involving the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, a lawsuit uh, that was filed by the Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action, Integration, and Immigration Rights and Fight Equality by Any Means Necessary. And they have, of course, been, been mentioned a couple of times already today. Filed against the governor of Michigan and the governing bodies uh, of the big Michigan universities right after their uh, initiative was passed um, a year ago. Um, that was their Proposition 209 clone. Uh, the problem um, was that all the litigants in the case opposed the initiative. So they were only too happy to agree among themselves to suspend its operation pending resolution of the lawsuit. Um, Governor Wilson, do you have any thoughts on this mediation issue? Yes, I think that was an, an example of collusion, a sham mediation, but I will give you another one that excites me even more. You will recall that the basic premise of Proposition 187 was that state taxpayers should not be stuck for the costs of providing services for illegal immigrants. The most expensive of those services was education. And that was not the result of a statute 
it was the result of a court decision, a Supreme Court decision, and frankly, a weak one. A five to four Brennan decision. Poorly reasoned, I thought, and I also thought the state of Texas did not do a very good job in terms of their facts. But in any case, I mention this because a primary reason for the strong support which I and others gave to 187 was our purpose. We knew it would be challenged instantly, certainly the day after, as it was. And we then expected that probably, depending on where it went, there was a pretty good chance that a trial court might, hold, might uphold a challenge to it, which we would then appeal to the Ninth Circuit. And we anticipated that the Ninth Circuit would probably once again uphold the challenge and we would once again appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States, where we thought with a very different court, and with, frankly, a very weak precedent, we had a very good chance of overturning Plyler v. Doe and eliminating the mandate imposed by that case to provide education at the cost of state taxpayers. And the effect of that, we hoped, would be to awaken the Congress of the United States to their obligation to secure the border and also to assume the costs that they were stiffing state taxpayers for. What, hap what happened was, just as we anticipated, the day after the election, a challenge was filed. What then happened for the next three years was nothing. It languished in a trial courts, in the trial judge's court, and finally, after she had been excoriated for allowing it to languish, she allowed it to, she finally came to a decision, rendered her decision. At about the same time, the Pacific Legal Foundation, noting, as I had, that my term was about to expire, sought to intervene. They were denied intervention, denied by the Ninth Circuit, who said, we think that Governor Wilson can be entrusted to safeguard and protect the interests of the proponents of the initiative. That wasn't really the issue. I thought that he could, too. <laughs> but he wasn't going to be there very long, thanks to term limits. By the way, I'll just a slight sidebar. When the California Supreme Court had the question before it, a majority of whom I had then appointed, they decided to impose a lifetime ban. Recently, I had the opportunity to have them all assembled before me, and I said, I, there's something I've wanted to say to you for a long time. <laughs> it's this, you ungrateful bastards. <laughs> now, what happened next is that it did get taken up to the Ninth Circuit. We appealed it when Judge Felser rendered her decision. And what happened next was shameful because what was permitted was a sham mediation in which there was no genuine dispute between the parties to this, this self-described mediation. It was collusive. 
because I really think this is important. I think that it should dictate really the creation of new rules of two kinds. What was there to mediate? The appeal was taken on the basis of whether or not this was a constitutional initiative. Should the litigants decide that? It seemed to me that it was indeed the, the duty of the court. And I agree with Judge Reinhardt, the Constitution above all. But I would also say it's the court's duty to make that decision. And they didn't. They allowed the parties to do so. And the party in this one case was the chief executive of the state. It seems to me that there is a duty. It should be a legal duty, clearly spelled out, that the duty is to pursue the appeal to effectuate the expressed will of the people. But that didn't happen. Instead, in this sham mediation, the judicial function of determining constitutionality was usurped by the mediators or those engaged in this mediation, which resulted in a dismissal and cut off the appeal that we were intending to make to the, to the Supreme Court of the United States. I am tired of hearing that 187 was thrown out of the courts by the courts because it was unconstitutional. The people of California were cheated of their day in court in the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, I suggest two, I think, entirely deserved remedies. The first is that it should not have been permitted to languish for over three years in the trial court. And I would say that there should be a federal rule which imposes upon federal judges the same duty that California imposes upon state courts to render a decision within a timely period. After submission, after the arguments, that to me was really an abuse of judicial responsibility and a bad one. The next thing is, what is there to mediate when you appeal a constitutional issue? And that's what was under appeal. And it should be the court that makes the decision on constitutionality, and they should not punt or simply let things drift into a mediation of the kind that occurred in the Michigan case and the kind that occurred on 187. I don't think there's any place for mediation of a constitutional issue, least of all when it is presented in terms of an initiative measure that is passed by a vote of the people. So those two changes would go a long way towards justice. Would anybody else like to weigh in on that one? Well, to say one word, uh, what the duty of the governor is, Governor Wilson may be more familiar than I am with that issue. Uh, the duty of the court is only to decide cases if there are live parties before it who want the court to decide it. The court cannot say to a party, you don't want to pursue a case, we're going to decide it anyway. Judge Kaczynski mentioned the Arizona case, where there was a statute that was clearly unconstitutional, an initiative measure, I'm sorry, that was unconstitutional. 
and ultimately the Arizona Supreme Court held it to be unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court said, after we had held it unconstitutional, no, it doesn't count because there was no party. The party who brought the suit uh, retired from the government, and somebody else came in, and they said, you can't take that other party. You can't decide constitutionality of initiatives unless you have two live parties who want you to decide it. So I don't want you to think that there's anything wrong with what the court did. If there's anything wrong at all, and I'm not expressing any view on that, it was what was wrong with the governor uh, or the state of California. Uh, it, 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 in any event, it would be nice. I think an activist judge, if I knew any, would be very... Very happy to decide lots of cases that we're prohibited from deciding. Uh, but we can only decide what live active parties ask the court to do. Judge, uh, I'm not an expert in this corner of uh, uh, civil procedure, but um, but you are. So I thought I would ask you about this. I no, take no, it, no, he's not. no, 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 no. But 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 it is true. I I don't know much about it. But it does sound to me like intervention was supposed to be a remedy for those kinds of situations. That if uh, someone's shaking his head, that's not so. Um, so, so I don't also don't remember the particular ruling in this case, but I thought that was the whole point uh, of the attempted intervention to say, look, the interests of the voters should be defended by the PLF. Um, uh, do, does that make sense that to allow a party to intervene in order to to defend? Uh, That's a different question. I mean, a different question. Uh, the 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 intervention issue is a different issue. I was not commenting on that. Uh, I was commenting on the mediation process and whether we had an obligation. The, the, the intervention was separate and apart from that below, and I don't know what the reason was, whether it was a right decision or a wrong decision. I was referring to the comment that when it got to our court, uh, the state and the, the, the plaintiffs in the case decided they wanted to settle it or mediate it, and that whatever they decided to do, it's not the function of the court to say, uh, we are going to decide this case whether you parties want us to or not. But uh, I, I yeah, and I have disagreed on this before, most recently in a uh, in-bank case called Central Income, where the party after hearing Judge Reinhardt's questions and oral arguments, saying, you really don't want to pursue this case, uh, moved to dismiss. And um, um, most of my colleagues voted to dismiss the case because the party no longer wanted to litigate it after having gotten strong hints from Judge Reinhardt that you really don't want to have this panel decide your case. It's all on the record. I'm not giving away any secrets here. I, I, put it in my, uh, I thought that court should not be a party to a sham and should not, be, uh, should not allow itself to be manipulated this way. And what happened in 209, if I remember correctly, was clearly that kind of manipulation. No, it's not 209. 187. I'm sorry, 187 uh, was clearly that kind of uh, manipulation. And uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, Governor Wilson's position. Unfortunately, though, I don't think it would have it would be sufficient what what Governor Wilson says, which is if the case is presented, the court ought to decide and ought not to let parties collude to do away with it because the only correct thing that the Ninth Circuit could have done under controlling Supreme Court authority would have been to affirm the district court. 
I, I don't think uh, without without going contrary to re- directly applicable Supreme Court authority, that's all we could have done. And then you'd be in a position where you'd have an affirmance by the Ninth Circuit, and you'd then have to have somebody to carry forward and file a certiorari petition in the in the uh, United States Supreme Court. And don't think anybody can come up with a theory saying the United States Supreme Court ought to take up a case when nobody files a petition. Uh, so it, it seems to me that the, the question that Eugene asked is really the key question, and that is why was PLI uh, not allowed uh, to intervene, and w- why in a situation where the normal players in the process uh, have uh, obviously colluded to, to, to reach a result, uh, why a court doesn't have a responsibility particularly to, uh, to, to make sure that a party that is creates an adverse interest, in fact, is, is in the case. In the United States Supreme Court, when, uh, the, in those rare cases when the Solicitor General uh, decides not to defend the constitutionality of a statute, uh, and the, these things happen rarely, the Solicitor General usually will defend the constitutionality of statute if, if at all possible, but there are a few rare cases where the executive branch feels can't do it. In that case, the Congress of the United States is given an opportunity to intervene and to present a present a uh, argument in the Supreme Court, and nobody has suggested that that is uh, inappropriate or that uh, there isn't that that, the, that that isn't the right thing to be done. Uh, in a situation like this, it seems to me that 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 the the problem was the, the fault here was is not not having uh, not not allowing. A party. Do I remember correctly that P, uh, specifically uh, PLF rather um, uh, had actually participated in the in the initiative process? Uh, clearly, the standing. We have lots of cases saying that if a party participates in promoting initiative, it has standing to to to, to represent um, the 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 constitutionality of the initiative. And that's, that seems to me that's what should have happened. Okay, let's get back to some of the conflicts with with the legislature. Uh, legislatures, as we said, have a number of ways to reduce the power of the initiative ballot. Uh, one way is through ballot qualifications, but another is through interpreting the initiative. Um, and my favorite example of this is the one that Governor Gray Davis signed into law concerning Proposition 209. Uh, members of the California legislature frequently voiced dissatisfaction with Prop 209's requirement of race neutrality. Uh, But in 2003, they passed a statute that purported to interpret, uh, but in the opinion of many, uh, we're not exactly interpreting, um, the meaning of Proposition 209. The statute, uh, taken from the UN's International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, exempts from the definition of race discrimination, quote, measures taken for the sole purpose of securing adequate advancement of certain racial or ethnic groups. In other words, it exempts precisely the kind of cases voters were thinking of uh, when they passed Proposition 209 in the first place. So Proposition 209's opponents could not have asked for a more complete um, back-from-the-graveyard victory. Now, that happens to be an extreme case, uh, and the courts didn't buy it ultimately. Uh, But it does pose a question. What role, if any, should the legislature have uh, in establishing the meaning of a popular initiative? 
Well, I think 209 is particularly instructive because of the deep level of cynicism uh, within the legislative process in the formation of 209. Uh, I met with Bill Lockyer, who was then the Democratic uh, leader, uh, at the suggestion of uh, uh, someone in Senator Feinstein's office. Senator Feinstein was concerned that the 1996 uh, presidential election would be adversely affected on the Democratic side based upon the experience of Proposition 187. And uh, the Clinton White House, looking at its re-election, did not want Proposition 209 of the November ballot. So it all worked in our favor because the reality is that Proposition 209 was a bluff in terms of funding to qualify. We didn't really have any money, but the other side didn't know that. So Bill Lockyer said, you know, I agree. We'll have the state legislature put it on the ballot the June ballot. So he sent me over to Willie Brown's office. He said, you know, we think that Willie Brown will go along with this. So I went to Willie Brown's office and he just got more and more angry uh, as and I hardly got any words. And he just kept walking around the table. And after an hour, said, I'm not agreeing to this deal. Kick me out of the office. So we were back to getting on the November uh, ballot. So when uh, Gail was alluding to the subsequent legislative action, it was an attempt to undercut a measure that they opposed, but were perfectly happy to have it pass on June rather than November, and were actually willing to put it on and save us a million and a half dollars when they thought it would work to their benefit uh, uh, from a political basis. So I, I have a different kind of answer. So clearly what Gail is describing is, is not permissible. Uh, I don't think anybody thinks the courts are that likely to pay much attention to. There's not like Chevron but, deference. But, but what about something that's less egregious so, than that? So well, I, I think why as not, a general matter, you? courts will probably uh, uh, not part express any deference to a legislative interpretation of, an in of a constitutional amendment uh, um, in that kind of situation, except insofar as the legislature comes up with a credible argument. And, you know, it's kind of like they can pay some attention to a law review article. They should pay much more to, to them. But, you know, if it's a persuasive argument, then in that case there'll be some deference. I don't think there'll be the kind of, in of deference uh, uh, that, that, that will make much of a difference. But yeah. here's what I think an important role of the legislature should be. One, there's one real problem with initiatives, uh, and that is that initiatives being framed usually as one-shot deals, very hard to reconstitute the coalition behind it, but also hard to modify the coalition behind it. It's very expensive to do that. Can do things that, aren't, that are better than the status quo, but are not the optimal solution and that ultimately need some revision. One example, I'm not an expert in this, but three strikes, I think in principle, locking up people uh, who have committed considerable amount of serious crimes is a very good idea. It's also very expensive. It costs all of us a lot of tax money. And uh, if that's worthwhile for somebody, for example, who's committed three serious uh, violent felonies, that's good. I'm not at all sure that if somebody's committed one burglary, which qualifies a violent felony for understandable reasons, followed by two other felonies, that setting aside the question whether it's fair to lock him up or not, that it's a good way of spending our money to lock him up for 25 years to life, especially if he's 40 at this point, you're warehousing a lot of 55-year-olds. Not a great idea. But there is a solution, and I think it's a solution the legislature should use more often, that in some of these situations, the legislature can put on the ballot a revising measure. And if 
it can, if it really is a good idea, as I think some kinds of revisions for three strikes, for example, would be a good idea, they can assemble a coalition that seems very credible to the public. That if a lot of people who say, look, I back three strikes because it's better than the status quo, but this is a sensible minor modification, and it's something they could get from the left and the right, then in that case they could make such revisions. I don't think they would be able to get that kind of coalition as to Prop 209, uh, because I think it's perfect since we were involved in our, the drafting, but in certain situations situations, the legislature should play a role as a check on the initiative process, but through the standard constitutional procedures. It's much easier for the legislature to put something on the ballot, including a constitutional amendment. They don't have to raise all the money for it. And in certain kinds of situations where even the backers would probably agree that some kind of modification, at least many of the backers of the initiative, since some kind of modification is proper, that is a perfectly suitable role for the legislature. We shouldn't just say, well, the legislature shouldn't tamper with the will of the people. The legislature should be willing to propose to the people modifications as there seems to be reason to think modifications are called for, uh, and that's going to be a much easier way of dealing with imperfect initiatives uh, than having to go out there and come up with a new initiative and spend all the money on it. But, you know, I, I'm not at all sure. I mean, I, I think what Eugene says is okay as far as it goes, but I'm not at all sure why courts should not and would not give deference, maybe not to this kind of end run that Gail uh, suggested, but if the legislator comes up with a um, interpretation or a definition of terms, uh, why the courts should not, in fact, give some deference to, I mean, after all, these are the elected representatives of people. Uh, the measure is supposedly, uh, I mean, would be signed by the governor. This would be something that uh, would result from the same political process that the initiative comes from. Uh, and what you have to remember is that uh, somebody has to interpret the terms of the the uh, um, uh, of an initiative. They are not self-executing. Somebody has to interpret the terms. So your question you have to ask yourself is, is it better that courts do it without any legislative guidance, or is it better to have guidance from the people's elected representatives? Now, Manny and I, the first brief that he and I uh, and my wife, Marcia Tiffany, worked on many years ago was an uh, a amicus brief uh, for the Libertarian Law Council in the California Supreme Court in one of the Proposition 13 cases, and the, and the, and the question was whether or not, uh, uh, the, the, the standard, as I recall, was whether uh, you needed two-thirds of qualified electors uh, to, uh, uh, in order to uh, approve a, a spending measure, and the parties disputed whether or not qualified electors included those people who voted in the election but didn't vote for this particular measure. Uh, we took the position that qualified elected means every registered voter. If, you're, if you didn't vote, uh, then it counts as a no. So when you go uh, 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 to approving the, 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 what, what's um, a spending measure, you not only have to have two-thirds of the people actually voting, or the two-thirds of the people actually voting measure, you have to have two-thirds of the people actually qualified to vote, for the, which was a different point of view. The California Supreme Court didn't buy it. Uh, 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 wrongly, I think, uh, to, 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 to this day. Uh, <laughs> you are amused, but I. <laughs> what is qualified electors? Go look it up. It really uh, only means one thing. Uh, but it seems to me that a situation like that, 
who, why are courts in a better position to decide what qualified elector means than, than the legislature? If the legislature looks at that litigation making its way down and says, look, there is this term called qualified electors. It's susceptible to at least three meanings that we can think of, and we decide uh, as a, in our capacity as the people's elected representative that it means X. Why wouldn't the court, or why shouldn't the court uh, um, pay, pay heed to that? Alex, I mean, if you accepted that weird definition, the fact of the matter is that... Which one is weird? Well, I mean, if you're saying, if you're saying you need two-thirds of qualified electors, and in some of the primaries only 40% of the people vote, by definition, you're, you're going to be 17 points uh, or, uh, shy, or 27 points shy of the two-thirds. It's not supposed to be easy. No, I, I understand. <laughs> but the, the other point is, even, even if you take qualified electors, it's like the city of L.A. had a rule years ago, we were putting through term limits that was eventually... Uh, uh, struck down, where you had to have a percentage to qualify a measure, not of the prior turnout of the election, but of voter registration. But voter registration is itself changing. So qualified electors is, in effect, changing. It's an elusive target. Yeah, it's not supposed to be easy. <laughs> no, but I, I admire your goal. <laughs> okay. it, it was manies. We were just, we were just assistants. But, uh, hold on. Just, for, for, just want to make an announcement here. We've got a microphone only on this side of the room for this panel because we had to, to, to take the microphone from over there for this. So if you have questions, we're going to have a few minutes for that. But Eugene, do you want to? No, I'd rather yield the questions. Oh, we got our, our, our questions already. Yes. Um, I was involved. I'm one of these perennial sig volunteer signature gatherers. And I was involved in 187. And we were, of course, very upset when Judge Failser issued an injunction the next day. And when it came to mediation, I didn't even know it was mediation. The SOS, Safe House State, authors of the proposition were not called at all into the mediation, but they did call MALDAV and ACLU and several others. My question to Judges Kozinski and Reinhardt is, if it had gone to up to the um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, how would you have ruled? And I just want to thank Governor Wilson for standing up to it and for what he has done. Thank you. I, I'm afraid I can't give advisory opinions. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, you said. I can't tell you how I would have ruled on the constitutionality of the initiative. <laughs> we usually decide cases after we read briefs and hear arguments. As I recall the measure, uh, well, I recall one thing. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to the Democratic Party, and it made California into a Democratic state. But other than that, uh, the, uh, there were various parts to the uh, measure, as I recall it. Uh, one was to keep sick children out of hospitals or from getting medical care. Another was to keep children who were going to be in the United States a long time from getting an education. Uh, those are two separate issues. Uh, I can't tell you, I, I think Judge Kaczynski probably knows more about it than I do. And he said we would have had no cho choice but to rule it unconstitutional. 
uh, although the Supreme Court could have changed the law as it saw it, and Governor Wilson said he thought the Supreme Court decision was a very weak decision and was wrong, so the Supreme Court could have had a chance to reconsider its decision. But as a judge on the Ninth Circuit, I gather that I would have been compelled, whatever I thought of the measure, and that's not much, uh, <laughs> that I would have been compelled to follow the current Supreme Court law and hold it unconstitutional. And that's all I asked. Then it would have gone up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, just returning to what the judge said, I think the problem wasn't with the mediation. Uh, for all I know, for example, uh, it may be that Maldef and ACLU were just parties. So the parties go to the mediation. The problem was whether or not there was going to be a mediation, whether there should have been a party that represented the will of the supporters and not just the, elect the, the then existing elected officials. So it's back to intervention. It's all about intervention. They should have had an intervention. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing. The supporters weren't a party because their motion for intervention was denied. That's right. So it all comes back. It's, the problem is not mediation as such. The problem is, that, for the reason the judge mentioned, that let's say the mediation would have come out at loggerheads and the Ninth Circuit would have struck it down, <laughs> the, somebody would have had to petition for certiorari. Uh, so that's why it's all about whether the backers of the initiative should have been allowed to intervene. Mr. Walner. <coughs> At the risk of violating the single subject rule, I want to ask two questions and kind of roll it around one concept. We've heard a meme today that in jurisdictions that have direct democracy, we get policies that are closer to what the voters want. My first question is, is that a good thing? I want to tie that into another question, uh, this concept of rational ignorance, where it is largely irrational for individual voters to spend a great deal of time informing themselves on issues over which they have very little control. And it is too much to expect uh, individual voter education. Uh, again, relating to this earlier question of, is it a good thing for government to give the people what they want in the face of this concept of rational ignorance? Thank you. I'll just take that. I mean, uh, Having been to Saudi Arabia, I have my reservations about bringing democracy to the Middle East. Uh, and so with respect to bring it closer to home, when you see every June and every November of every election year, the same 30 second spots with the same firefighters and the same police people representing the unions that have essentially are paid a fee to give their people with the fire helmet on or the uh, in the background no matter what the ballot proposition subject is, to say this is a matter of police protection and firefighter protection, therefore vote no on this or yes on that, it is terribly discouraging. And I think it is very, very far afield, as I said at the outset, from what people wanted this process to be. And as I said at the outset, I know of no way to distinguish. I wish the state legislature would put more measures on the ballot uh, and would take a statesman like you and say, we're not necessarily for this measure or against it, but we think the people ought to decide. I think that would be very healthy so that the true citizens' movements would have these matters on the ballot, but for reasons of their own prerogatives, and especially as the state legislatures uh, won't do that. Um, did anybody talk uh, earlier today, I'm sorry, I could only make this panel, about California's two electorates thesis? 
No. So this is Bruce Fines, that thesis, and uh, Dan Lowenstein can, can correct me on that because he's actually a political scientist and studies this stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, it, it's one of those things that, that, when, that I remember hearing, and it changed permanently my view of the, of the initiative process. And it's particularly true for California, which is a state that has a great many non-citizens in it. And also many of the non-citizens, as I understand, are demographic, excuse me, not even many non-citizens. There's a considerable demographic variation in terms of uh, where there are, which districts have more younger, uh, more children, essentially, more minors. So here's the model. In California, and I believe in all states, uh, uh, legislative districts are supposed to have an equal amount of people. It's an interesting question whether that's the right way of equalizing uh, the size of districts. But that is the rule, equal number of people. So you could have one district that has 400,000 people and another that has 400,000. But in one district, 300,000 of those may end up voting. That's probably exaggeration. But let's say 300,000 may end up voting in a typical election. In another district, 100,000 may end up voting. Why? That district may contain a much smaller number of, of uh, citizens, a much greater number of immigrants, perfectly legal immigrants, I might add, in, in, in many situations. Uh, but just they, are, they can't vote because they are non-citizens. May contain a larger number of, of minors. May contain a large number of people who just choose not to vote for reasons that may be correlated. They may be newer to the country, may not be as acculturated to, to, uh, to, to voting patterns. They may be younger, even if they are of voting age and the like. So if you filter the decision-making process through the standard legislative process, those two districts have exactly the same power because each one elects, the, uh, elects a particular uh, uh, legislature. That's not necessarily wrong because, after all, they have the same number of human beings in them, 400,000 in each one. But if you go through the, uh, through the uh, initiative process, the district that has 300,000 people actually voting will have three times the voice of the district that has 100,000 people actually voting because, again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There are three times as many people voting there. So as a result, you will foreseeably have a very different pattern of uh, uh, results through the um, initiative process where, where it's one person one voter, one vote, excuse me, and through the legislative process where it is essentially, through this filtration process, one inhabitant, one vote. So as a result, you can have very different patterns. Now, returning to the question, there is certainly rational ignorance in, in uh, people's judgment about initiatives. There's also rational ignorance in people's judgment about uh, uh, legis uh, whom to elect. There's also, my sense, is a good deal of rational ignorance on the part of legislators as well. Maybe a little less because it's their day job, but there's still some. So, so you might end up having rational ignorance both ways. So one of the questions you might want to ask, which we've been talking about throughout, is to what extent do you want the initiative process to check the legislature? There are kind of institutional barriers on certain important things going through the legislature, and you want this alternative. But another process is to what extent you want one of California electorates, California's electorates, the one where it's weighed one vote, one voter, to check the, the other one, which is one vote for one inhabitant or one legislative vote for 400,000 inhabitants. I'm not sure, actually, whether you should much care about it, but in practice, that is a very important question. And to whatever extent you think that the one voter, one vote electorate is likely to reach either results you like more or, in some abstract sense, more rational results, uh, then uh, that would be a useful check on the standard everyday process that leads 99% of all the results, and that's the legislative process. Uh, <clears throat> Dean makes an interesting point, but Bruce I, Fine makes I, Bruce Fine. Well, 
whatever. Uh, but it's a much worse situation, uh, Eugene, in our federal government. We have two senators from Idaho. Well, Idaho may be a bad senator to pick. Uh, but two senators from Rhode Island. Uh, and two senators from California. What, the dis Wyoming the is disproportion a, is, a... is far greater. Now, somebody said the other, uh, sometime during one of these programs, and I haven't heard anyone comment on it, if the initiative is such a great system, why don't we have it nationally? You know, the, 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 the suggestion that, that um, underlying Eugene's uh, point, and that is that we district by population rather than by voter, uh, it's just an assumption. There's no Supreme Court case that tells us, which is in a, in a case involving the apportionment for the, for the, for the uh, L.A. County Supervisorial Districts, I, in a case called Gaza, I, I, I filed a concurring opinion saying, really, uh, the Supreme Court authority suggesting that you really need to apportion by voter, that one man, one vote, really is not a question of body count, but a question of how many people are able to vote. And there's a Supreme Court case involving a district, you forgot the one other exception, people with their large children, lots of um, uh, aliens, university students, and uh, military bases. And there is a case involving an Air Force base where the Supreme Court seems to suggest that really what you're looking at is not the bodies, not, but the people who are actually on the ground voting. And if that's the case, we're looking at a significant, uh, I mean, nobody challenged it in years, but uh, you're looking at a realignment of, of uh, congressional districts in California by quite a bit. I just think it's, it's a weak argument because I backed the initiative process, but the fact is that the initiative process is more liable to – look, this election June will likely have a 40 percent turnout. If you had a constitutional amendment on just over 20 percent of majority, so one-fifth of the state's voters could amend the state constitution uh, there. Uh, the fact is that you have – just as you have judge shopping and try to get a, a Judge Henderson to overrule Prop 209, what you have is, is game-playing uh, among those who have the resources. Should we put this on the June ballot or the November ballot? What measures will be on the ballot that we can slate with? And all these artificial devices there. So I think as awful as the legislature is, and I think it's quite uh, awful, it's easier to make a case for the legislature than it is for the, for the people under those kinds of artificial circumstances. Uh, Dan, did I, by the way, miscredit this? Is it Bruce Kane, actually, that I should have Bruce discredited? Kane, Bruce Kane, uh, Bruce, Bruce is, Fine. Yeah. Bruce Fine's a parody. Bruce Kane has, has Bruce Kane. written about this. So did Jonathan Bruce Kane, Steinberg Bruce and I. Uh, yeah. Berkeley. Uh, wrong, wrong. Yeah. Bruce. Actually, can, I, I had a question about your two electorates thing, and that, that was, it seems to go against the stereotype, as far as I can see, in that you would expect that would mean that the initiative electorate would be more upper middle class uh, they have fewer children and they're more likely to vote. Whereas I think of the stereotype as, you know, initiatives are, 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 are the hoi polloi. Um, and it also, I think, would suggest that, that elected executive officers are more likely to be in that, you know, attuned to that second electorate. Well, um, and that may be true. Well, um, I think that helps explain why California is more likely to elect uh, um, Republican governors and senators than it is to elect Republican legislators. That works on the election, but it doesn't so much work on the initiatives. Well, the, the problem is that you're talking exclusively about statewide issues, but if you look at the city and the county local level, your thesis holds more, more true there, where you, you have a, a disproportionate effect of an older, more white 
uh, electorate, more of a homeowner electorate in particular, but in a statewide measure, what you have is the electoral process has changed because the big money interests are funding candidates via these slate uh, ballot measures there. So you're having a tremendous intervention in the electoral process by mailing after mailing. Or you saw in the recent election, for example, the Republican Party uh, was given all this money by this so-called Native American coalition, there are millions of dollars, to do mailings to Republicans. For what? For these particular ballot measures with a bit of an overhead charge to support the party. Okay, Dan. Um, you understated uh, the incidence of uh, courts striking down California initiatives. Uh, one that you left out was the, uh, term limit, the congressional term limits case, which w the case that went to Supreme Court was from Arkansas, but it had the effect of striking down the California initiative. Rightly so, by the way, in my opinion. It should have been nine to nothing and not uh, five to four. Uh, but more importantly than that, you talked about the courts, but you only referred to cases involving the federal courts. And uh, there are lots of cases uh, I can't, my memory is worse than yours, so I can't remember them all. But from the scars on my back, I know that certain portions of the Political Reform Act of 1974 were struck down by the California Supreme Court, and there are many others, uh, not to mention the uh, case that was struck down on the basis of the single subject rule, very much incorrectly, in my opinion. Now, but, but having said that, I don't think that that at all undermines uh, Judge Reinhardt's main point which is that the cases are decided under the Constitution. Initiatives, not surprisingly, involve very controversial, often involve very controversial uh, matters, uh, which often impinge on uh, constitutional issues. And so there's nothing particularly surprising about the fact that there should be a high incidence of uh, uh, successful judicial review you know, sought in initiative cases. Um, and... Uh, my personal opinion is, my, my jurisprudential view is that judicial review is too aggressive in this country, uh, but that's a, that's a different issue. That doesn't mean that uh, there's anything particularly wrong with the, the way the, uh, uh, the judges are dealing with initiatives. Now, um, much though Julian Ewell was my very much beloved uh, colleague, uh, I think he's very wrong was wrong to suggest that there should be a different standard, at least substantive standard, and I would urge Judge Kaczynski not to entertain the idea of a different substantive standard in either direction. Uh, because if there is a different substantive standard, uh, that leaves the possibility that an identical statute could be passed in two states, um, uh, one by initiative and one by the legislature, uh, with exactly the same intent and with exactly the same background circumstances to whatever extent background circumstances might be relevant. And you would then have a decision um, uh, striking down one of those laws and upholding the identical law. That seems to me to contravene uh, the, um, the rule of law. Uh, I think that... and I, and I just want to end by, by broadening that, because what I'm really attacking is the political process prong of uh, the Caroline Pro Products uh, footnote, which is based on the notion, I believe, that um, issues involving the, the, the political process are different from the other kinds of issues that the court was backing away from. Uh, that there's somehow, you know, intellectuals or you know, intelligent people, professors, judges can, can understand 
how the political process works. Okay, Dan, you can come to all my programs, but you have to cut off your question here because we're already over time. Okay, here. I just want to uh, say that, uh, okay, um, the premise is that you can do this kind of political analysis and somehow that is objective. What I want to say is it's just as political as the economic regulations, the social regulations, and should be dealt with in the same way. Okay. We're actually running a little bit over time, so, so, um, but we're allowed to do that. Gene told me that we could. Uh, if we want to quickly, very, very quickly ask the last two questions, then we'll go to our reception. Okay. Oh. Today we've learned a lot about direct democracy and uh, the initiative process and how it protects the majority. And we've learned how the rule of law and the Constitution protect the minority. But here in this room today, I understand we have mostly Republicans, maybe a few Libertarians, so I would think you would all be constitutionalists. Um, but I'm wondering then, how do we protect the solvency of the state? Um, the Constitution limits government, and I see government getting bigger and bigger by these processes. And I have just a quote that you probably have, many of you have heard before, that seems to speak to this. It's by Alexander Titler. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy followed by a dictatorship. Okay. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. And I just wanted to say that I know people who are both upper middle class and lower middle class who vote for more largesse. Okay, do any of you have a quick comment on that? I thought they were always voting against taxes. That's, I have quite a different understanding. That the, the problem is that, that people vote for what's good for them, largely. And the reason we can't provide the necessary services in California is because of Proposition 13. It's because people voted their self-interest uh, not to pay taxes when the government needed that money to finance the state properly. Okay, so last question. The opposite yeah, last question here. Lady. Thank you very much. I've appreciated the addition of everybody on the panel, although I, I must say it, it does bring to mind Thomas Jefferson's observation that it's a dangerous doctrine indeed to believe that, that the judges should be the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions that will lead to a despotic oligarchy. There's a number of us uh, in the American Legion, of which I'm a member, along with 2.7 million wartime veterans who think that was not an observation but a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Justice Kaczynski said that that the judiciary is the check on the legislative and executive branches, I would agree with that. But the question is, as once posed by Harlan Stone, Justice Stone said, if we are the checks on the executive and the legislative branches, who's the checks on us? And his answer was, we are. And the question to the panel is, number one, should there be checks through either representative or direct de democratic means on the judges when they exceed or abuse their authority. And second, in terms of Justice Reinhardt's observations, it would be cruel and unusual punishment to make them worry about getting reelected. Can't we 
take away this burden from the judges by simply imposing term limits on them as we do on mere mortals? Anyone have a comment? Give it a judge Very I, I guess we should have the generals decide, right? If not the judges, somebody, somebody has to decide these questions, and if, if you don't want the judiciary to decide, whether it would be the generals? Well, I think it might be what Larry Kramer said in his book, and that is what James Madison said, the people themselves. And it doesn't seem to me that when the third branch of government is open only to participation by one class of American lawyers, that we ought to consider having a broader representational group, and we ought to have some check. And right now, no one has been able to articulate any check whatsoever. Okay, I think we, we, we need to declare a little bit of direct democracy here, and then we are going to now vote on whether or not to thank our panelists. Some yes, some no. <laughs> I think that was unanimous. I'm going to declare that unanimous. Uh, we now have a reception. Uh, in back here, I want to thank everyone for coming out here and everyone who worked on this yeah. conference today. Um, I declare it a success. Gail, uh, one, one, one last thing, Jim uh, one last thing I want to say is uh, Gail Harriet had a great deal to do with, uh, with, the, with developing this whole program, and I want to thank her not only for moderating this panel, but for her development of the program. Thank you.